So, before, before we jump into the book of Ruth, I want to make a, a quick announcement about an upcoming Sunday, uh, Sunday, September 5th, which is Labor Day weekend, um, so you can remember this. Um, we, we're going to do an event that we're calling uh, Fresh Start Sunday, and I'm, I'm going to paint you a picture, all right? So, let's pretend like you started coming to church five years ago. And, and you were introduced to this really nice couple. They were really friendly. They, they talk to you. They greet you as you come in. And it, it's, they're, they're just a lovely family. And, and, and they, they care about you. They're, they're happy when you come in. But you don't remember their name. And, and so you, you kind of, it, but it's, it's been five years. It's too late now to ask them their name. All right, you can't do it, all right? Or, or maybe you're, you're a visitor, and it's your first time here, and you've been introduced to like 20 different people, and you can't remember which name belongs to which face, and, and it's just kind of awkward to ask someone's name again. And so I bring you Fresh Start Sunday. Fresh Start Sunday is it's a Sunday where we're focusing on being welcoming and hospitable to one another, um, and so the, the first thing about Fresh Start Sunday that you need to know is when you come in, you're going to be giving a, given a name tag. And so everyone is, in the whole church is going to be wearing a name tag. Now, the first rule for Fresh Start Sunday is that you have to write clearly on your name tag. It needs to be easy to read. We don't need doctor's handwriting, John. All right, it, it needs to be nice, legible, large enough for someone to read without having to go like this. All right, so, so that's rule number one. Rule number two for Fresh Start Sunday is that you can't be offended. Like if you notice someone who you know looking at your name tag to remember your name, you just let it go. All right. We, we, we are slow to be angry. We are quick to forgive. All right? This is, this is a fun, welcoming event that we're, we're going to be doing. All right? And then, then we come to rule number three. And rule number three is the most important rule. So everything that we've talked about so far, the, the welcoming, friendly, building fellowship within the church body, that, that is the secondary goal. Of Fresh Start Sunday. The primary goal of Fresh Start Sunday is to spread the gospel throughout the community. So rule number three is everyone has to invite someone to come to church with them on this Sunday. This is the perfect Sunday to bring a visitor. Everyone in this room knows somebody in their life that doesn't go to church and that you can invite. All right? Everyone knows somebody, at least one person in their life, that needs to hear the gospel. Okay? And so Fresh Start Sunday is the perfect Sunday. And Pastor Terry is going to come, and he's, he's going to preach a clear gospel message. And, and it's going to be a wonderful time. So if, if there's a person in your life that you've been thinking, I should really invite this person to church, and you haven't done it yet, this is the Sunday to do it, okay? And so at, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to have this wonderful time of learning everyone's name again if we've forgotten. 
We're going to have lots of new visitors. And then after the sermon, um, we're going to have a, a light uh, lunch. I think we're going to have sandwiches and, and cookies and that, that kind of stuff, just easy stuff, just to give us a reason to stick around and, and have this time of fellowship. So, so write it down on your calendars. Sunday, September 5th is Fresh Start Sunday. All right. Now that we got that out of the way, if you have any questions, you can come talk to me um, about it later. Um, so, so turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. Um, and as, as you're turning there, allow me to uh, remind you of our context so far. So in Ruth chapter 3, we saw a lot of, a lot of big things happen. Um, Naomi came up with a plan to find a husband for Ruth. She, she sends Ruth um, to the threshing floor in the middle of the night to meet Boaz. Um, he, she says, go uncover his feet and then lay down, wait for Boaz to tell you what to do. And Ruth does this, except for when Boaz wakes up and notices that she's there and says, who are you? Instead of saying, I'm Ruth, tell me what to do, she says, I'm Ruth, are you going to marry me or not? <laughs> and Boaz replies, well, of course I'm going to marry you. Um, but there's a problem. There, there's another relative, another guardian redeemer who's, who's more closely related to you than I am. And so for all of this to be above board, we need, we need to clear it with him first. And so that's, that's how the chapter ends. Boaz leaves to go into town, and Ruth returns home to tell Naomi what has happened. Now, my original plan, which it says in your bulletin, was to get all the way through verse 12 today. But that's not happening. Um, so we're going to try to get through verse 8 today. You'll thank me when we get to verse 8 that we're still not going through the next four verses. Um, so let, let's, let's dive into God's word together. Uh, follow along as we read Ruth 4, um, verses 1 through 8. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over, my friend, or come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Let's pray as we dive into God's word. Father God, we come before you, and we are so thankful for this, for this time to, to gather together as, as your church and to spend time studying your word, Lord. And I just pray that you will speak through me, um, that you will give me the strength and, and the focus this morning um, to, to preach your word, Lord, and to 
And I just pray that you will speak through me, Lord, and you will prepare hearts to hear what you would have them hear. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start in verses 1 and 2. So, so Boaz goes to the town gate. He, we, we saw in the end of chapter 3 that Boaz left the threshing floor and went into town. And so we pick up with Boaz here at the town gate. And he, and he sat down just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned comes along. What a coincidence. Um, so the, it just so happens that as, as Boaz walks in, oh look, there's the guy I need to sit and talk to. Um, it's almost like someone planned that for us. Um, so we, we see that once again, all, all of these just so happen things happen here. And this man comes along, and Boaz calls to him and says, hey, come sit with me, and, and let's talk. And the guardian redeemer comes, and he joins him. And, and this could just be a normal conversation. We don't know how close they were. He doesn't have any idea what's going on. And so he, Boaz calls him over, and he goes to talk to him. And then Boaz goes, and he gets ten elders and brings them to sit down and witness this. And that guy's got to be like, hold on a second, what's going on? He, he, as soon as Boaz goes and gets the elders, this man knows that something official is about to happen because the, they needed these witnesses for, for a legal matter. And, and so Boaz gets, gets them and he, he brings them over and prepares to talk to him. And so then in verse 3, we see Boaz just gets right to the point. He says, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moabs, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her husband and our relative Elimelech. And th- this is an interesting statement because to our knowledge, Boaz has not spoken to Naomi about this. Th- the closest thing we have to Boaz being able to say this and represent Naomi in this legal matter is Ruth saying, are you going to marry me or what? And so Boaz is, is, you know, he's representing Naomi in this matter, but we we don't know if they've actually had a conversation about that. Um, But another interesting point is that Ruth is not mentioned in this initial part of the deal. He's saying, he's, he's just focusing on the land. Naomi is selling the land that used to belong to her or her husband, Elimelech. And, and I think that this is important because, I, I, if you remember, way back in our very first um, sermon on Ruth, I argued that this book should be called Naomi and not Ruth because Naomi is the central character. And R- Ruth, is, Ruth is a secondary character in chapter 1. She, she takes a step forward in chapters 2 and 3, but then in chapter 4 she's kind of in the background again. And, and the focus is on Naomi. And, and so we see... Boaz is saying, Naomi, our relative, is selling the piece of land that used to belong to Elimelech. That's not exactly what's happening, because Naomi doesn't actually own any land. When when Naomi and Elimelech and their family, they left Israel, they likely would have sold everything that they had that they couldn't take with them. So the land has already been sold to somebody else. When Naomi came back, she didn't just come back to the land that her and her husband used to own 10 years ago. That, that land has transferred property. Um, and so what Naomi is actually doing is saying, 
my family has the right to redeem this land. But I don't have a husband or a son who can do that. And so I'm making it available to my relatives to buy this land and redeem it for themselves. And, and so that the land will still stay within the clan. All right, and, and it's times like these that we're thankful for books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because they, they show us what is actually happening here. And, and we have passages like Numbers 27 that says, that gives the description of, all right, so if, if there's a husband who dies and they don't have a son and they don't have a brother, this is who it goes to. And we, we have those things so we can know what's going on when we come to them in the book of Ruth. And so what Naomi is saying is, I don't have a redeemer in my family line who is capable of buying this land back and keeping the land in my family. And so I need a relative to buy it so that the land doesn't disappear out of our greater family, our clan, forever. And so that's what Naomi is saying. She's saying, someone buy this land and then in doing so, they will take care of Naomi. So the, the, the investment is you buy the land, it becomes a part of your estate, and all you have to do is take care of me for the rest of my life, which for an aging widow like Naomi would be relatively inexpensive for a landowner to take care of her. And, and, and so that's what's going on here. That, that's, that's what Boaz is presenting as the transaction. He's saying, kinsmen... And, and we get to verse 4, and he's saying, I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of everyone seated here, in the presence of all of these people. They all see that I'm bringing it to you, suggesting that you can buy it, because if you don't buy it, I will. That, that's what's going on here. And so he has all of the elders present. He's not trying to sneak around and get this for himself. He, he's doing this the right way. All right? And, and Boaz is saying, if you're not going to do it, I will do it. But the, the kinsman says, I will redeem it. And everyone's heart sinks. What do you mean this guy's going to redeem it? Boaz doesn't want to hear it. Ruth doesn't want to hear it. We don't know if Ruth and Naomi are there. If I were Ruth and my love life laid in the balance. I would sneak off to town and watch what's going on, but we don't know if she was there. But any, anyone who's rooting for Ruth and Boaz is really disappointed when they hear the kinsmen say, I will redeem it, because that's not the plan that we're hoping for. Everyone is devastated except for Boaz, because Boaz has a plan in verse 5. Boaz says, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz is clever. Boaz has planned for this man to be willing to redeem the land. And he says that on the day that you acquire Naomi, you also acquire Ruth in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, this is not entirely true. What, what Boaz is saying here, that there's, there's no law that demands that to be the case. 
there's, there's some real ambiguity to what's actually happening here. Now, it, it could be, th- th- there is an argument out there that suggests that the translation is not quite right. That the second you is, is mistranslated. The, the, they will argue that when Boaz says, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, should be translated, on the day that you acquire the land from Naomi, I will acquire Ruth. Saying that you can buy the land, but I'm going to marry Ruth, and when we have a child, he's going to grow up, and he will inherit this land. That's not a very faithful translation or understanding, I don't think. It, you, the word can mean that. It, it, it's, if you take the blatant literal translation, it can mean that. But I, I don't think that's quite right, especially since when we see it in chapter 3, and Boaz says, if he redeems you, referring specifically to Ruth. So he, he is willing to allow this other kinsman to not only redeem the land, but also to redeem Ruth, if he is willing. So I don't think that that one is right. But I do think that Boaz is intentionally backing this guy into a corner by, by pairing the land with Ruth. Because there, there's, there's no actual law saying that. But what Boaz has done is he has said... He has paired Ruth in the name of Elimelech and his family line with the purchase of the land in the presence of ten elders and anyone else who's watching. Boaz has said, if you don't do this, I will. So Boaz looks like a really good guy. Boaz is saying, not only am I willing to buy the land so it stays in the clan, but I'm also willing to marry Ruth and provide an heir to make sure that Elimelech's line does not pass into nothing. The family name was incredibly important. One commentator wrote, In the ancient world, one of the most fearful curses one person could invoke on another was, May your seed perish and your name die out. And, and we see this in other places in the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul is pleading with David. This is King Saul. Um, he has sought to kill David. David has kind of you know, shown him mercy and not killed him when he had the chance. And Saul finally recognizes that David is the, the rightful king, that God has chosen David to be the next king of Israel. Now listen to these words from 1 Samuel 24 verses 20 and 21. This is Saul saying, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Saul recognizes that he's no longer going to be king and he pleads with David that he will not wipe out his family because that was a common thing for a new king to do. And and so... Saul is, Saul is pleading with David, and, and that's what we see happening with Ruth. So Boaz is doing here, in the presence of everyone who's watching, that this issue is not, lo- or not just about land, but it's also about the family. These two things are linked. And, and, and so Boaz has given this, 
potential guardian redeemer four choices. The first choice is he can do what Boaz has said. He can, he can buy the land and he can marry Ruth and produce an heir for Elimelech. That, that's his first option. The second option is that he can say that he will do this, buy the land, and then just refuse to marry Ruth. He, he, he could lie. He could say, yes, I will marry Ruth. He'll get the land. It'll be a finalized legal thing. And then he'll be like, no, not marrying Ruth. There's no law that's going to force him to do this. So he has the freedom. Doing so would, would cost him as far as his reputation in town. But he has that option. The third choice is he could openly do this. He could say, I'm going to buy the land, but I'm not going to marry Ruth. Again, he, he could do that. But this, this is still going to cost him in terms of honor and status within the community because Boaz is standing right there saying, I will do both. He, he will constantly be reminded that Boaz was the better man than he. And he also runs the risk in doing so that if Boaz marries Ruth and produces an heir, that heir, when he grows up, can claim the land that he just purchased. So it would only be a temporary thing for him to have. And then the last option is he could do neither. He could say, I will not redeem the land or Ruth. He, he will give up his claim on the land. And then Boaz can step in and redeem both of them. And, and that, that is what he chooses to do. He says, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And, and so Boaz has successfully pushed him into this corner where he recognizes that he's not left with a lot of great options for his own financial gain here. So he, he says, I might endanger my own estate. This could mean a couple of different things. First, it could mean that this man isn't as well off as Boaz is. He, he might not be as rich as Boaz, and so it might be a big sacrifice for him to redeem this land and, and add it to his own inheritance. So if, so if he buys this land and he gets to keep it and it becomes a part of his family land, that's a good thing because it's a future investment that he will continue to earn money off of. But if he has to buy this land and then split his inheritance between his family line and Elimelech's family line, that, that, he might not have enough money. It might not be a prudent financial thing to do. And it could end up with both, if, if he doesn't have enough money, both his family and Elimelech's family might be poor and in danger of having to sell the land to someone else. So that's one way that it could be um, endangering to his own inheritance. And the other option is he might not have any children. We don't know anything about this man. But if this man doesn't currently have a child of his own, a son of his own, and he marries Ruth and has a son, and that's the only son that he has, that son is going to have Elimelech's name, not his. Which means that when he dies, the son who carries Elimelech's name is going to get everything. And his family name is lost. 
And this is just, when you see all of these moving parts, you realize what a masterful move this was by Boaz. Boaz has gotten what he wanted without lying, but by pairing these two things together, knowing that this man would not be willing to make any of the choices that Boaz didn't want him to make. And then we come to verses 7 and 8. And verse 7 is really a weird verse. Like, why do we need to know this? It says, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. What? First of all, that's a really strange custom for us to look back on. Like, we don't, we don't close on houses by giving a pair of tennis shoes to somebody. But, but why did the narrator think we needed to know this? There, there's a couple reasons. First, because even by the time of the writing of this book, it seems like this custom doesn't happen anymore. He says, now in earlier times in Israel, this was the custom. Meaning that when we have the the narrator writing this down, they weren't doing this anymore. But we it, it seems like we could have just skipped it to verse seven or verse eight, where the guardian redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he takes off his sandal. And and we see the, 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 the taking off the, of the sandal in, in the, the simplest form is, is showing that the transaction is final. That when he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz, the land and Ruth are redeemed by Boaz. This is, this is the climax of the book. Ruth who signed up for a life of destitution when she clung to Naomi in the fields of Moab, has now found rest under the wings of a loving husband. That just happened when this sandal was handed to Boaz. And that's a huge deal. But I think that we're also given verse 7 for another reason. And if if you've been listening to the whole series, you'll remember back in the second week that there was another transaction, another Israelite law that had something to do with the removing of sandals. And that was in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, when we're given the instructions for leveret marriage. Allow me to refresh your memory. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, 
his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. So in the event of a man refusing to marry his brother's wife and, and, and produce an heir for his brother, th- this was a matter of great shame on the brother who refuses. He, 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 this, he's called to the presence of the elders. Now notice all of the parallels from Deuteronomy 25 to Ruth chapter 4. The elders are all watching. This is a matter of carrying on a deceased relative's family name. But what is noticeably absent in the passage in Ruth is that there is no shame directed at this other relative. Ruth isn't walking up to him and spitting in his face and taking his sandal. His family line is not known as the family of the unsandaled. Because, strictly speaking, leveret marriage is not in play here. There's no law in Israel that demands what Boaz suggested, that if you're going to redeem the land, you need to redeem Ruth and produce an heir. That's not there. The only reason Boaz was able to back this guy into the corner is because of the pressure from the elders and everyone else who was watching, and Boaz saying, I'll do both. And I think that the narrator knows that readers would be tempted to see this situation as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 25, which is not what's happening. So he puts verse 7 there so that we know that the reason the sandal comes off is not because of what happens in Deuteronomy 25, but because of this custom that was in Israel. We are meant to understand that what Boaz is doing is is a loving thing. He's not being forced to do it. This other kinsman is not being forced to do it. Boaz chooses to redeem the land and Ruth out of love and mercy and grace for his relatives, not because the law says I have to. And that is extremely important for us to understand as we look at this book. That this is a love story. This, this is Boaz showing amazing love and covenant faithfulness and loyalty to these people, to Ruth and to Naomi. And, and it's something that should be celebrated. And, and that, that's where we're going to end our, our discussion on the text today. Um, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 9 um, next week. But before we close, I, I want to focus on this theme of redemption once again. Because the Lord built redemption into his law for his people. And even though this particular instance didn't force Boaz or this kinsman to redeem 
Ruth and to produce an heir for them, for Elimelech. It doesn't lessen the importance of what's going on. In fact, I believe that it does the opposite because Boaz wasn't following the letter of the law when he did this, but he was following the spirit of the law. God put these laws, these redemption laws, into his word, into his law for his people, so that we would see what it means to redeem somebody, to show them love and mercy and grace and kindness. That Boaz willingly and eagerly redeems Ruth and Naomi shows that he cares for them, it shows his love. He wasn't bound to redeem them, but he did so anyway. And this picture is the same picture that we get from the redemption of God's people. God did not have to redeem any of us. He didn't have to save a single person in this room or a single person in this world. A lot of times we hear these arguments against Christianity and especially about God's sovereignty and salvation. This goes something like, why would God save some and not save others? We hear that a lot. But this is not a valid critique of what Christianity is or what redemption is. Because the truth of the matter is that God is not and has never been bound to save any of us. We shouldn't ever ask, why did God save some and not others? We should instead rejoice in the fact that God saw fit to save anyone. Because none of us deserved it. God could have, if he desired to, wiped all of us out. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, he could have just been like, nope, we're done. Starting over. He could have done that. And he would have been just in doing so. When the world became overcome with wickedness, he flooded it. And he could have flooded the whole world and killed everyone. Started over. But he didn't. He saved Noah and his family, who were far from righteous. Then on two different occasions, the Lord told Moses... That he was going to wipe out his chosen people and start again with him. And both times, Moses says, no, Lord. And the Lord relents. Time after time after time after time, we see God forgiving and redeeming sinners who do not deserve it. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I read the Old Testament, And I see everything that they're doing, all of the grumbling, all of the wickedness. I think to myself, how did God forgive them again and again and again? And that is a terrible way of thinking about it. Because I should be thinking, why did God save me? Why did God forgive me? Again, and again, and again, and again. Because a big part of us understanding and appreciating redemption 
is understanding our own sinfulness. All of us, everyone in this room, are sinners. John likes this. We are dirty, rotten sinners. All of us. But generally, after a period of time, we as Christians tend to forget that we're sinners. We, we tend to think, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. Look at all the things I do. I'm not nearly as bad as that person. Look at, look at all of the lost. Look, look at all the terrible things that these people are doing. I would never do that. This, this is a terrible point of view. But we tend to live in this world like we are the righteous ones. We are the ones who are worthy of God's salvation and God's forgiveness. And the rest of the world should be condemned. And this brings about bitterness and resentment towards the lost instead of compassion. For a very long time, Christians in this country have been fighting and losing what's described as a culture war. Like, we're, we're fighting against the culture. We're, we're trying to impose the biblical morality on this country. Now, I'm not criticizing standing up for what is right. But even that term, the, the culture war, it divides us. It says, we, we, we are on the right side, you're on the wrong side, and that makes you our enemies. And we have th- th- this, this divide between us. And, and, and that doesn't help. Very few people, I'm not going to say none, but very few people are convinced of their sin and their need of a Savior by someone yelling at them. But do you know what melts hearts? Compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and faithful living. A lot of times we put our hope in the wrong things. We get caught up in, in, in the big picture of what this country looks like. We put all our hope in electing the right leaders so that they'll make lasting change for this country. But there is a much greater power in the gospel and in living out the Christian life than there is in any election you will ever vote in. Pastor Jonathan Lehman wrote a great book about the church and politics, and in it he writes this. The church's most powerful political word is the gospel, and the church's most powerful political testimony is being the church. There is more political power in the gospel and in being in the church than there is in electing a president, installing a Supreme Court justice, or even changing a constitution. An excellent president or constitution might make a decades-long impact. An exceptional president or constitution might be felt for centuries. A faithful pastor and church, however, work on the timescales of eternity. 
A few pages later, he writes, To say that the mission of the church is to transform the culture or redeem the nation is to fall for a prosperity gospel. It puts people's hopes in temporal things, not in eternal ones. My challenge for us today is to not put our hope in the things of this world. Do not judge the success of the church, of Christians, by what is going on in the culture of our nation, but instead judge the church by its faithfulness to the Word of God. Is the church being the church? Are you living faithfully? Are you rejoicing in the fact that you have been redeemed, not because of the way that you lived, but, or not because you did enough good deeds, but because of the Lord and His compassion for you, that He showered you with mercy and grace? The eagerness that Boaz displays, this compassion, mercy, and grace that he pours out on Ruth and Naomi is astounding. And it is the perfect picture of what it looks like for Christ to show mercy and grace to his bride, the church. Because that's who we are. We are the bride of Christ. And every day we should be preparing ourselves for the day that he returns to claim us. Our eyes should be fixed on him, eagerly longing for the day of the Lord when he, he will set all things right. Our job today is the same as Ruth's, to live faithfully and to show kindness and love to those around us. It is our responsibility, our privilege, our joy to take the grace and mercy and kindness and faithfulness and love and forgiveness that we have been shown by our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and to pour that out on those around us. This does not move that we approve that which is sin, but it means that we treat the lost the same way that Jesus did. If you read the Gospels, Jesus was gentle and kind and comforting to the worst of sinners. He, he was known as a friend of sinners. He, he shared intimate conversations with them. But you know who he was especially harsh with? The self-righteous religious elite. The proud, the judgmental. And so I would ask you to consider today, who are you? Are you a lowly sinner that has been redeemed by a Savior, or are you a self-righteous Pharisee? The way that you think about and treat the lost will tell you. I pray that we are all eager to share the redemption that we have in Christ, that we will all strive to show and share what grace we have been given. In the same way that Boaz was used by God to redeem Ruth and Naomi, we should pray that God will use us to redeem the lost, that we will be able to play a part in his salvation to reaching this community. Naomi fled the land of Israel and sought refuge in a pagan land. Ruth was a foreigner and a stranger to the promise, an outsider who doesn't belong. 
yet both found redemption under the wings of God. And if these two can be redeemed, so can any of us and anyone else that we come into contact with. And so I pray that we will have this correct view of our sinfulness, that we will be humble and recognize that we didn't earn our salvation. And that we will show the love of God to those around us. That we will be a light in the darkness. That we will demonstrate the redemption of our great God. And that the Lord will use us to pour out his love and mercy and grace to those around us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are so thankful for your love. We are so thankful for your compassion. We are so thankful for your forgiveness. We know that we do not deserve it. We know that we are sinners in need of a Savior, Lord. And we just thank you that you sent your Son to pay the penalty for our sin, Lord. That you brought us into a relationship with you. And I just pray that you will be with us, that you will use us to reach the lost, that we will show love and mercy and grace to this community, Lord, and that your name will be known throughout this city, Lord. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.